to reasonable doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we recently awarded one of the largest cash prizes in the world for art to a terribly generic stained glass window of Jesus on the cross. Mm. Was up against a life-size wax statue of Gerald R. Ford, by the way. Mm. (laughs) We sure know art here in Grand Rapids. Uh, You can find us online at freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts or doubtcast.org, which will redirect you to Freethought Blogs. Or you can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids, and W237CZ, Hudsonville. 1680 AM and 95.3 FM, streaming at org, and you can now get the iPhone app, Android app available soon, for Public Reality Radio to listen on the go. Sweet. I know. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Droid. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> Hi. Teen pop sensation Justin Schieber. Hello. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Hello. Now, today we've got an interview coming up with the delightful Dan Barker from the Freedom from Religion Foundation, talking about clergy members abandoning their faith and his new project to help them out um, as kind of the second part of our Abandoning Your Faith series, <laughs> right? Our unofficial Abandoning the Faith series. Yeah. Yes. Which beats, I guess is we're on... summer genocide. You know, so <laughs> I, I think our entire... Uh, I was going to say, we're on episode 92 <laughs> of the Abandoning the Faith series, yeah. but uh, that's beside the point. Um, also, our own Justin Schieber recently gave a theological smackdown to our favorite apologist, William Lane Craig, um, we've got some psych of religion and God things like you. We'll wrap up with some polyatheism. But first, the news. Uh, according to the Jehovah's Witnesses, people who leave the JWs are diseased. Yeah, our our episode on Jehovah's Witnesses and the difficulties of leaving mm-hmm. the Jehovah's Witness Church, I guess, came... At a pretty good time as far as the news is concerned. Just recently, the Watchtower, the famous Jehovah's Witness publication, published in their pages, well, let me just quote it. Suppose that a doctor told you to avoid contact with someone who is infected with a contagious, deadly disease. Rage. You would know what your doctor means, and you would strictly heed his warning. Well, apostates are mentally diseased, and they seek to infect others with their disloyal teachings. This was published, of course, in the Watchtower to uh, to encourage people to avoid seeking out apostate literature, right. uh, coming into contact with any viewpoint that might uh, disabuse them of some of their well, illusions. Per- particularly the people who have left the Jehovah's Witnesses, not just right. any old uh, um, non-believers, but apostates right. of the Jehovah's Witnesses. 
it's obvious that that's the most dangerous group for JWs to be interacting with because these are people who understand their mindset and their beliefs. Mm-hmm. That's pretty standard in any like in the sociological like group theories that the ones that you target and demonize the most are ones not that are ultimately different from you. So right. like you know like within the in Islam the the way that the Al Qaeda or some of the fundamentalists they wouldn't target necessarily Christians because everybody knows that that's just you know right. you would target the people that would be potential apostates. The Jehovah's Witnesses right. aren't worried about Hindus. Yeah. Right. They, yeah, the apostates are the ones that can break conformity. Yes, heretics are always more dangerous than infidels. The positive side of this is the Jehovah's Witnesses and their their policy of disfellowshipping apostates. Mm-hmm. It gave it a chance for this to get into the broader media. Right. It's been exposed um, because this yeah. was, I don't know, is leaked even the right word? Because it's it's a publication. It's no, yeah, it's it's out there for everybody to see. But it was, but this was, uh, but several people who were already who had already left the church, mm-hmm. who were running these websites that uh, provide kind of a support group for ex Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, saw this published in the Watchtower. Right. You know, characterizing these people as mentally diseased, and took it to the media. One of these gentlemen who just left the church was quoted in the Independent as saying, uh, many like me remain associated with the witnesses out of fear of being uncovered as an apostate and ousted, not just from the organization, but from their own friends and families. I find I am now branded as mentally diseased, giving anyone who discovers my true beliefs free license to treat me with disdain. Obviously, the, the plight of many Jehovah's Witnesses and, uh, and apostates still within the church is, is getting to be well known mm-hmm. out there. I'm, we were really happy to have Robert on the show last time to share that with us. And uh, I don't know if you guys saw it, but we got quite a bit of feedback on the blogs yeah. from Jehovah's Witnesses and non-Jehovah's Witnesses who were sharing their stories about leaving the faith. Right. I don't, we get this so often that I sometimes I need a good story to remind me how difficult this can be for people who are still... Uh, stuck in a religious community where all their friends right. and family are believers and, and they feel like they're trapped. One of the comments we got on the blog really reminded me of that, and I wanted to read it real quick. Which, by the way, we do have a new blog. We are on the Free Thought Blogs Network, so mm-hmm. I would encourage uh, listeners, even old-time listeners, to check out the new site and maybe contribute yeah. something at a comment. It is a, it's a sexy-looking site, too. <laughs> it is. Check it's it nice. Out. And uh, there's some really awesome blogs on that network yes, right indeed. now, too. One of our listeners left this comment. said, hey, guys, this was a great episode. It brought back a lot of old memories. I really should have dropped you a, lo- a line a long time ago to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your work and your podcast. I disassociated from the Congregation of Jehovah- Jehovah's Witnesses almost three years ago as a direct result of this podcast. I was given an iPod as a gift and found your podcast the first day searching through iTunes. I listened to you in secret, and I download your show on Saturday after field service before mowing the lawn and delete it afterwards so my then-wife wouldn't find out what I was listening to since she was a very devout witness. Just tell her it's porn. (laughs) Don't say what it really is. Nothing, honey. Just just porn. Don't worry. I questioned things for the first time, did months of research, and mentally deconverted. After nearly a year, I came to the conclusion that my 
my personal integrity was at stake if I continued to live a double life. It cost me my marriage, and I've not talked to anyone in my family for a couple of years now. I, I thought of suicide, but made it through, and now I've never been happier. I'm in college, and I'm planning to teach high school science. You guys changed my life. I debated emailing this instead, but I want other questioning witnesses to know that it'll be okay. You can get through it. We can together take care of all. So wow. <laughs> I that, found that especially moving I, I, for obvious reasons. I did not see that post and you reading that. I, that just gave me chills to hear. And, and to me, the most exciting part is he's in college now, which, right. as we've talked about with Jehovah's Witnesses, is something they, they try to push against and that he's uh, going to be a high school science teacher and that mm. so great and we got we got several i mean this almost kind of just opened the floodgates as soon as people started wow. reading douglas's comments uh more jw's came to the forum uh other people who are not jw's but are christians and worried about losing their spouses yeah. and stuff started coming in robert joined on to share his Right. His uh, comments to other JWs who still feel trapped. And, uh, you know, it was nice. I kind of I was looking at this. I think sometimes part of the reason why I'm really proud and happy to be doing the show is that we we dovetail between playing an educator's role, sharing this information. But sometimes I think we're more of a support group or therapy. Right. right. Uh, we get a lot of emails from people who who are saying, you know, it's just. It's just good to hear people just, talking yeah, just and thanks. To, to feel yeah. like there's somebody out there having these discussions. So, uh, and, uh, and to Douglas and to other people out there who have gone through this, um, I am I'm so impressed by your strength of character, I guess, to, to make this move. I, I know when each of us... Um, walked away from religion. It, it's never an easy thing, but I I didn't face the loss of my um, marriage or my job or, you know, in some extreme cases, um, fear of, of physical harm or anything like that. So the people who have so much more stacked yeah. against them, mm-hmm. I, I um, my hat's off to you. Uh, I really am, am yeah. impressed, and um, it's difficult for just about anyone to to leave religion if they're very involved. But it is definitely a higher cost, higher price for some groups right. more than others, and that's actually the subject of today's God Thinks Like You. Yeah, the, uh, the the phrase high cost is spot on. That's actually the, the term that's used in the literature to in group and sect theory to describe uh, a range of... Group sex theory? Sect. Sect. How did I not know about group sex theory? Wow. <laughs> group sect theory. Your your studies get more and more interesting every week. You guys ruin all that's good and true. <laughs> in group sect theory, uh, the, the, this suggests that there are certain levels of strictness. And so, you know, at one end, you would have, I guess, like Unitarians or something that's very low cost, right. where you would basically, there's not a lot of asked of you. You can come and you can come and believe whatever you want to believe, and there's not a lot of other activities. And a lot of the activities are fairly loosely organized. 
But at the opposite end, the high-cost religions like Jehovah's Witness or the mm-hmm. Latter-day Saints, Mormons, yes. uh, are, are groups that are considered – the reason they're high-cost is because you have to put your money on the line for those groups. Everything is involved with that. Like Scientology? You have to go door-to-door like Scientology. Door-to-door, they, they restrict your – as Robert talked about, they often restrict you – your social networks, they yeah. ask where you've been, you know, who you're seeing and and, and really uh, that people who they make sure that you walk the walk. And so I think we've talked before on the show about what the type of dynamic that could set up with things like uh, people tend to defect less often from those groups. Probably one of the reasons is because if you are have been in those groups, your family, your social network, all that's wrapped up in it, where are you going to go? You right. know, if you decide to leave, it's not just a matter like of not going to that church anymore. You have to give up your, your network. And it turns out that that actually has uh, literally a physical cost. There is a study that was done last year uh, by, I hope I'm pronouncing their names right, Christopher Scheitel and Amy Adamschick uh, in the Journal of Health and Social Behavior, which actually monitored the physical health of people uh, as a function of their groups, whether they are still in their church or group or whether they've left. And what they found was is that the um, that actually people who are raised in and stay in some of these high-cost sectarian groups like the Latter-day Saints or the Witnesses actually are more healthy than people in other groups or the non-affiliated. Mm-hmm. So they, they are, uh, you know, physically better healthy, uh, more healthy. They self-report higher health. But the ones that leave or actually take a big hit, and you can almost see like a, on the graph like a linear relationship with if you decide to leave those groups, uh, those people are actually are in poorer health than people in other groups. Now, does that that include, especially we've seen with um, like the FLDS and so forth, when they would they kick out the young man mm-hmm. so that the old man can keep having sex with the young women? Of course. Um, that they will, because they've been repressed for a long time, they will go out and there's a lot of drug use, there's a lot of alcoholism and that sort of thing. Is that throwing off the curve at all, the extreme end of people who use the group, they, who, who they, leave the groups and end up falling into drug use and that sort of thing? The study didn't cover like Rumspringa level uh, right, right. hedonism. Mm. Okay. Uh, but it, it did I used mention, to be Amish and now yeah. I cook meth. It did <laughs> mention uh, that a large part of the of the positive health effects come from the the social monitoring that right. you have people. I mean, we talked about force to Robert. abstinence. Yeah. Robert, in Robert's experience, smoking a cigarette could be right. the beginnings of a disfellowship <laughs> with loss of that supervision. Then sometimes people become more lax right. on on regulating certain unhealthy behaviors. Yeah, they didn't. It wasn't longitudinal, so some of these things we can't rule out other effects. But okay. uh, some of the other hypothesis, besides the one that you guys just mentioned with monitoring, is just the the loss of of support. You know, right. a lot of uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the effects on health are actually physical health are actually related also to social support and mental health. Sure. That it, you know, if you're kicked out of your social group or your family or whatever, uh, that those things can actually have a, a physical cost. Even just being around people who share a worldview mm-hmm. with you seems to have positive effects. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you're going to lose that if you feel all alone and there's nobody that you could possibly talk to. Yeah, and just like the, an the studies that I've talked about before of, of secular groups, you know, show that, that people who are involved in social networks, just the, even if they're not religious, uh, tend to be more happy 
and more satisfied with life. So, the, the, you know, a lot of this effect probably isn't necessarily the religion content itself. Right. It's the, the meeting members of a, a group, a social group, and having support. It's kind of a sobering message because there are certain costs that people take. There are hits that you take when you choose, to, like these people we've been talking about, to, to leave that. That's not an easy decision, and there might be some costs. I think one thing that, that it behooves us to do is provide those people some kind of safety net and to, right. to, right. to say, you know, you don't have to just be the cranky apostate living alone in your mm-hmm. mansion on the hill. You can You can join groups and to have them available. I, I wonder if this would have been worse, um, say, 15, 20 years ago where the Internet was not so available sure. because now, uh, you know, you can find a Facebook group for anything. You can find there's um, a meetup and that sort of thing. So there are ways for people who are alone to find a new community, even if it is only a virtual community, which yeah, doesn't have a good, lot of the same benefit. That's a starting point, and then uh, there's there's more and more groups that are starting up. There's been an explosion yeah. of like campus right. groups mm-hmm. and things right. like that. Uh, you know, and even if it's not a specifically secular group, that they, that somebody could, you know, that there are things that are not. I mean, they're secular in the sense that they're not religiously oriented. But mm-hmm. I think that a lot of people are confused when they leave these total control groups because they've been made to. They've been taught that, you know, once you're out there in the world, it's like this cold and barren right. place. A lot of that stuff is self-fulfilling prophecies. You know, we've we've talked about like the Rumspring effect where these people often the, – the kids who are given freedom often go straight back and, and we right. would wonder why did they do that? Well, think about it. The message they've been giving is – and they've been – you know, you're either with your family. You have your life all mapped out. You're going to be a whatever Amish or it's drinking beer every night and right. smoking crack and you know laying around and they don't have they're not you know they're not educated right. what are they going to do like become a computer programmer i mean it's mm-hmm. not as if they've been trained to have a life on the outside right right the study pointed that out too they were talking about uh how many members of these high cost groups will just stay in the group to avoid all the uncomfortable things that happen when you leave. They mentioned Catholic nuns who wouldn't leave their order even though they wanted to because it was going to be too difficult for them, pointing that this is also a difficulty for clergy as well. Yes, you know, yes. it's, it's not just members of these groups like Jehovah's Witnesses who where their entire social network is is other believers. Uh, that's especially a big problem for clergy who might start entertaining doubts and need to leave. Funny you should mention that. If only there was some sort of group that they could go to. Well, we're going to talk with Dan Barker, who himself was a minister yes. when he dis- when he became an atheist, and he himself had to deal with the difficulties of leaving the church, and now is part of an effort to provide a support network for other clergy who are entertaining doubts or trying to leave the faith. Uh, Here's our interview with Dan Barker. Dan Barker is the co-president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. He's also a co-host of Free Thought Radio and the author of the books Godless, and more recently, The Good Atheist. Thanks for joining us on the show, Dan. Thanks for inviting me, Jeremy. Richard Dawkins writes the introduction to the book Godless, and he pays you a very odd compliment. 
He calls you the most eloquent witness of internal delusion. <laughs> a triumphant, smiling refugee from the zany, surreal world of American fundamentalist Protestantism. Well, he's talking about how do you explain to somebody with a totally different mindset what it's like to have your own mindset. For example, how did Helen Keller explain what it was like being you know, blind and, and deaf. So uh, to Richard Dawkins' mind, this delusion of believing is so foreign and so weird. How do you explain it to somebody in a sensible way? Well, I was that guy. I was that deluded preacher who carried my Bible, who was saving souls, who was waiting for the kingdom of heaven any moment now, angels and demon possession and faith healing. And I spoke in tongues and I I prayed, I felt the Holy Spirit, I felt this presence in my mind of God just giving me this peace that passes understanding, and uh, I used to get goosebumps when I, um, you know, when I prayed, and it was also affirming, and it was a delusion of the brain, but I loved it. It was like this wonderful thing happening inside. Uh, of course, I didn't realize at the time that goosebumps are not evidence of the Holy Spirit. They're actually evidence <laughs> of evolution. They're evidence of the fact that our ancestors were hairier and they used their fur for thermal control or for just to, to get larger to scare off a predator. But I thought the goosebumps were a sign, wow, the Holy Spirit is like, you know, I was in, awe, in the presence of some awe-inspiring... Uh, so I was when I was a preacher for 19 years, I wasn't pretending. I wasn't like one of these phonies. I really put my life on the line, preached, I traveled, I was an associate pastor for a, mm -hmm. a few years, a missionary for a couple of years in Mexico, and a cross-country evangelist, a Christian songwriter. So uh, in my book, Godless, I explained all that, and when, when Dawkins read that, it gave him sort of a glimpse from the mind of one of these deluded people of what it's like to really feel it and believe it. And I explained in the book that the motivation that drove me into the pulpit was the same motivation that drove me out. I wanted mm -hmm. to know what was true and speak what was true and stand up and say, this is the truth. And so I didn't really change that much. And something, some healing happened in my brain through the rational, maybe frontal lobe or something that I basically had a four or five year process of growing up and getting out of that delusion. Although I have to say, I can flip back into it at any time. I, I don't know if... <laughs> Maybe if that's mental health issue or what, but I won't do it here, but I can go out behind the barn and speak in tongues, and I can reproduce all those things. I can talk with God. I can mm. feel. And someone like Dawkins and my father-in-law, um, Jody, he he just died this year, but and James Randi say, well, they say the same thing. It never stuck with them. They went mm. to church, uh, or else, in Dawkins' case, he tried on the helmet, actually. Yeah, you know, the God and, helmet, right? And nothing happened, right? And but and, and with my father-in-law, he he remembers when he was a kid sitting in church, realizing my parents are nuts. They actually believe this stuff. And James Randi says the same thing. You know, it just never. So maybe there's a bell curve thing that some of us fall on one side and some on the other. I happen to fall way over here on this end of susceptibility to these mystical things, and I felt it and lived it and preached it. Where Dawkins is saying he's way over here on this side and he's never going to feel anything like that. Uh, and by the way, I don't think he's missing anything. I think he has just <laughs> as much awe and beauty and love and meaning in life 
without this, you know, religious delusion. So that's why he wrote those words. It's always fascinating to me the differences in our in our movement, uh, getting to know other skeptics and non-believers. The difference between people who were just so doubted their entire lives, and then people like you and me, the apostates. Yeah. Uh, we were sincerely in it, and one thing that is sometimes hard to communicate, and something you do so eloquently, is that you you were sincere, and it was part of your values. What did you say? You said the same thing that drove you into the pulpit was what you we drove you out. out. Yeah. Many religious people are sincere pursuers of truth. They really do want to know what the world is like and live yeah. their life uh, according to to what they find. Yeah. It's just they've been deceived. They've been tricked. They've yeah. been deluded. Yeah, and we're all victims of that. And I have atheist friends who are skeptical that I was a true believer. They think all believers are just pretending, but of course I wasn't. I felt I was so lucky to be born into the right family, the right religion, the right country, the right time in history, and uh, I thought Jesus was coming any minute. But one of the things that happened was that Jesus didn't return any minute. You know, I, I, saw, I wish I'd had a camera. I saw a sign in a church that was painted across the top of the pulpit. It said, Jesus is coming soon. But there were cobwebs on it, and the paint was peeling. <laughs> and and every generation of Christians has fancied, has flattered themselves, we are living in the end times, and we are specially chosen to be on the front line of the army for Jesus. So little things like that started going into my subconscious. Mm. And things like Adam and Eve, mm. for example. I, I believed in the historical existence of two people, two proto-humans named Adam and Eve. Whether or not they had navels was an open question, but still... <laughs> Um, but then I came into contact when my musicals became popular. I, I started getting invitations, not just to preach in fundamentalist churches, but to preach in more moderate kinds of churches. I started, I talked to hundreds and hundreds of pastors all over the country of various Christian persuasions. And so the beginning of my migration that took four or five years wasn't from fundamentalist Christian in the next morning to atheist. That was impossible. Hmm. But it was a slow, gradual process of talking with other ministers within Christianity, because there's not one Christianity. No. There's hundreds and hundreds of Christianities, and they all, they all can open the Bible and prove to you that they have the right flavor, and the others are off in some way, right? Everyone has their own proof text. <laughs> so it was, it was things like that. This one pastor told me, uh, uh, he said, I believe in Adam and Eve, but we have some members of our church who think it was a metaphor. And I thought, what? And you let them be members of your church if it's just a metaphor? Uh, and he said, he said, don't get me wrong, but these people think that just like when Jesus told a parable, he didn't mean it to be a historical story. It was just a, a, a lesson, you know, uh, like a, you know, like Aesop's fables. You don't, we don't really think there were any talking animals, but there's a story that's important. So that these people in my church, this guy said, think that. The Adam and Eve story, the Garden of Eden, was one of those parables that the early Jews told, not meaning it to be literal. It was just a story that had some truth about human nature and sin and the fall, of, you know. And I was shocked at that, but I started thinking about things like that. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, if if the prodigal son is just a parable, and if Adam and Eve are a metaphor then maybe God himself is just one big figure of speech, too. Maybe the whole—where do you draw the line right. between what— and, of course, even fundamentalists know that there's metaphor in the Bible. Sure. 
when Jesus said, I am the door, you don't look for hinges, right? I mean, even fundamentalists know there's a line you can draw between what is literally true and what is meant to be more allegorical. So where's that line drawn? That was that started me that line started moving across that spectrum for me, or maybe moving up, you know, the line separating the essential from the non essential, which is what I think segregates denominations. Some of them have their line way down here, including things like whether women should wear jewelry in church or, you know, or and then other liberals have the line way up here where these other things don't matter. And so that line was shifting in my mind. And over that four or five years, I moved clear across until I realized, yeah, there's no evidence for a God. God could just be one of these figures of speech. Uh, there's no argument for a God. There's no good definition of a God. There's no agreement among believers about this God and so on. And then there's no need. People live good moral lives without this God. So that's a that's making a long story very short. But it started with the Bible, in the literal mm-hmm. interpretation of the Bible. So how aware of was your congregation of your changing viewpoints? Well, at that time, I didn't have a congregation. I was an associate pastor in three different churches. Uh, but then I went into cross-country evangelism. Mm-hmm. And with the success of my Christian musicals, I was getting invited as kind of an outside speaker. So I was evangelizing, thinking the world was ending. So at the time when all that happened, I was somewhat separated from having to stand up before a congregation. Interesting. It was more of a... And maybe that gave me some freedom. You know, yeah. Maybe that gave me more... Uh, a broader cross-section of Christianity that I was talking with and to at that time. Uh, and in fact, I was invited to some liberal churches. I was invited to a Roman Catholic church who would perform one of my musicals, which I thought, you know, they were, I thought these Roman European foreign religion over here in America, they were true Protestants, you know, they weren't true Christians. So I think that helped me. The fact that I was not tied at that time anymore to a, a local church, uh, I had more of a network of friends and co-missionaries and co-ministers and pastors and all of that. Uh, Those seem to be two very common aspects to deconversion stories. As Number one being the exposure to all these different perspectives within Christianity. In fact, as an atheist, I think I, think I, I got my initial training in debating Christianity as a Christian. Yeah. <laughs> I debated more Christians back when I was within the church, I think, than I do when I was outside of it. Um, so getting that exposure to the, all those different viewpoints, but then, yes, having a, a time where you are free, where, where you don't have constant monitoring by a social group, where you have a, a, a kind of a free space to start thinking your own thoughts and ideas, yeah. that seems to come up again and again in these deconversion stories. Although I do know ministers who are in the pulpit of local churches who have lost their faith who are staying in the church for practical reasons. Mm-hmm. And they're struggling right now about how to get out and how to explain to their family, their friends, their congregation. So there are others with different types of stories who are leaving the faith and the ministry as well. And that brings us to the clergy project. The clergy project, moving beyond faith is what we're calling it. It was mainly Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett. Daniel Dennett last year did a study of non-believers in the pulpit with his mm-hmm. colleague, uh, the researcher uh, Linda Lascola, uh, and it was a pilot study. 
And in doing that study, they had to find ministers who are in the pulpit who are now atheists or agnostics who no longer believe. Well, I was one of their sources for finding these men because I hear from them. Mm -hmm. Uh, They read my book, Godless, or they they know about my story, and they send me a secret email. Hey, I'm still preaching, but I believe like, you know, I got to get out of this. So I was able to funnel, I don't know, maybe eight names to them, and they took three or four of them for their actual study where they Mm -hmm. went. She flew there and talked with these people, uh, and they used pseudonyms because they're still preaching. So, um, and Dan and uh, Richard Dawkins has always thought, you know, we, there's a lot of these ministers that are trapped in this theology. And what other profession in the world, if you change your opinion about something, it, it affects your entire status and income and everything has to change, right. you know? So um, he, his foundation put up money for this uh, website forum, which we're calling The Clergy Project. And by the way... Um, there's others. Levi Fragel from Norway uh, have been talking about this for years. Uh, for decades, we've been talking about getting clergy, ex-clergy together and, and existing clergy. So um, in March of this year, uh, 2011, we started the Clergy Project as this secret invitation-only forum mm-hmm. for active and we call them alum or former veteran clergy like me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and today, uh, we have about 25 active clergy in this group wow. and about 60 former clergy. So uh, <laughs> I'm amazed you have that many numbers already. And without too much fanfare or discussion about it. So, And a lot of the former clergy are people that I've known over the years that I just happened to meet that are just buddies. We went through the same thing. Some of them have been out of the ministry for 30, 40 years now, you know. Mm-hmm. And in my case, for like 20, 20 something years. But, um, and some of them are just freshly out. But what's really exciting is that we're mixing it up. We're comparing stories. Mm-hmm. We're offering support. It's like a community. And some of these preachers are so glad to have a place where they can come. We have to carefully screen them and vet them to make sure that right. their story is real. In fact, the, the two admins of the site right now are Chris and Adam. Those aren't their real names. But they are for, they are preachers who are up right now preaching on Sundays, hmm. and on and Monday morning they emailed us. You won't believe what I had to say yesterday. It's just you know oh, I, no. I feel so bad, and they admit there's some uh, ethical hypocritical question there. But these guys are balancing, and it's not just guys. There's some women ministers mm-hmm. in the group too, and we actually have one rabbi uh, in the group. Uh, they have to balance. The broader ethical picture, you know, they've got children's support, they have an income, they have they have health care through the church, they, right. and who's going to hire somebody with a divinity degree anyway, and so they need to be retrained. And one of the things Richard Dawkins suggested early on was that maybe we could someday become an actual organization and start like a scholarship fund to help retrain right. To save a preacher, you know, which <laughs> <laughs> I would give to that. I would too, <laughs> you know. So, but right now we're just, uh, we're, right now we're just figuring out what we want to do. It's all bottom up. It's not, it's not an organization. It's, it's kind of neat to see how so many people. There's at least a, what, eight or ten people that are volunteering to work on this project to make it all happen, and now that we're having to involve more more than one screener, because up to now it's either Linda or I who've been actually screening, who know the real identity of the person, but no one else does. They Mm -hmm. go into the site as anonymous with pseudonyms, 
and they're very careful not to reveal too much about where or who they are. But now uh, there's John Compeer uh, out of Phoenix, who's a former Southern Baptist, fifth-generation Southern Baptist minister who's an atheist now. Uh, he just helped screen one of the new actives who's going to, who has just joined us again. We're, we're working on a public web page, too. It, when, it's, when it's done, it'll be theclergyproject.org, and we've got the test site up, which will be just a non-interactive informational things that we think will attract more of these clergy into it. Uh, and so when we announce the public web page in a couple of weeks, then uh, the plan is that Richard Dawkins Foundation and Freedom from Religion Foundation will issue a joint press release saying, here it is. Here we are. And if you're a minister out there who has lost or is losing your faith and you want some support in some way, then contact us. So. I wasn't ever a minister, but I was I was awfully close to becoming one. What was most important for me in those really early days, um, it's difficult not being able to communicate or even talk about your questions with other people. And so finding a forum where you can just get these things off of your chest makes an incredible difference. Yeah, well, it's one of these groups that you don't have to join unless you're a clergy yourself. So, mm -hmm. uh, you have a new book out, The Good Atheist. The Good Atheist is an answer to Rick Warren. You know, Rick mm -hmm. Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. And I wanted to call the book Life Driven Purpose. <laughs> but the, the publisher was a little afraid that Rick Warren might sue us. And I, I, I was, I was telling them, bring it on, you know. I mean, wouldn't that be great for publicity? But which is kind of interesting. That tells you a lot that there's interest by commercial publishers in atheistic writing. That yeah. there's a market there now, and maybe Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris and Dennett have, I don't know if they've created the market or if they just tapped into it. But now the publishing industry realizes, hey, there's, yeah, you know, there's people who want to buy these books. Well, I just heard that Penn Jillette's new book, God Know, is six weeks now in the New York Times bestseller list. So what does that tell you, that people are buying books about that? But uh, The Good Atheist, uh, they, they picked the title. Uh, the subtitle is Living a Purpose-Filled Life Without God, which is what I want to address in this book. It's not The Good Atheist, How Can You Be a Good Person? There's a lot of books out about that already. Uh, mm -hmm. Greg Epstein has a book out on that. So there's a lot about morality without God. Uh, and, and I have my own take. In fact, I have a chapter in Godless about that. But the good atheist is not moral good as, as much as it is practical good. Mm -hmm. Like when you say, hey, that was a good show, right? Mm -hmm. Or you did a good thing, you know, or you're a, uh, you know, um, it, pointing out that without, without a God, there, are, there have been hundreds and hundreds of people, thousands of people living purpose-filled lives. The point I make in, in this book, The Good Atheist, is that the good news is that there is no purpose of life, and that's really good. It's good to know that there's no purpose of life. Life is its own, if you will, life is its own purpose. Life right. perpetuates, you know, and that life is its own reward, and that we, we don't need to be looking outside or beyond or somewhere like we're, we're this helpless, you know, floating around with no rudder kind of thing. The good news is there's no purpose of life, because if there were a purpose of life, that makes us slaves. And I go into great lengths showing that in the Bible, the highest virtue is obedience and loyalty as slaves. Paul calls himself a slave of Christ many, many times. Many of yeah. the writers, you know, and they're proud to be a slave, a humble servant, following the orders. And that's what Rick Warren's book is all about. 
The purpose mm-hmm. of life is to submit, to become a slave, to follow orders, to fit into this plan outside of yourself that you know how you fit in. That's the, a purpose, but it's not a very appealing one. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a demeaning purpose. It cheapens life is what it does. It makes us secondary. It makes us not really true masters of our own fate, but it makes us just followers. And and if you grow up in that environment, you think, well, then what is my purpose? How do I fit in? What should I do? Please, God, tell me what to do. But to say there's no purpose of life doesn't mean there's no purpose in life. Mm -hmm. So you can have a purpose-filled life, not from outside, marching orders from outside, but from your own inner values of trying to solve problems. Mm -hmm. And basically, life is problem-solving. The brains we have are designed to be flexible enough to solve the problems. The basic ones of hunger and food and shelter and and mating and child-rearing, all those things. And then the other problems we have, um, disease and disasters and um, gaining knowledge. So if you want a purpose-filled life, purpose in your life, not purpose of your life, then find a problem. Mm-hmm. Hunger, uh, inequality, uh, uh, oppression, uh, disease, um, knowledge to gain in science, uh, beauty to create, uh, whatever. Find some problem. There's no shortage of problems to yeah. work on. <laughs> Which means there's no shortage of purpose in our lives. <laughs> exactly. And uh, this, this second half of the book then gives brief profiles of more than 300 non-believers who lived lives of immense purpose. People like Elizabeth Cady Stanton working half a century for women's right to vote. Hmm. Who would dare say that was a purposeless life? Right. She didn't believe in God, but she had an immensely meaningful life in trying to solve a particular problem in her life. So I talk about reformers and artists and songwriters and scientists and philosophers and uh, authors, actors, uh, artists, uh, people who have enriched the world in so many ways. Well, you too have lived a life of immense purpose. I know that many apostates, such as myself, have drawn a lot of comfort from your writings and uh, and also as a tireless advocate of the separation of church and state, too, working with the Freedom from Religion Foundation. I just wanted to thank you for everything uh, you're doing for this movement, and thank you for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Well, thank you. So that was great having uh, Dan Barker on the show. And um, we emphasize so much the high cost of leaving a religious congregation and the challenges that people face. I think I kind of wanted to end on a positive note. After our discussion with Robert and all these comments that were coming in, a lot of people were sharing the the difficulties they had to go through. Mm -hmm. But every single one of those stories ended on a positive note. And uh, there was one one particularly well put comment that I wanted to read before we move on. This was from a listener named Lewis. He said, uh, for all the friends and family you will lose, you will gain many more in the long term. This is not faith talking. This is experience. There are riches in knowledge, experience, and relationships to be had. And once you have put aside arcane beliefs, you'll find it easier to get rid of others you might have. And letting go of those is the first step to the real adventure that life can be. Amen. Well said. Well said. 
Now, we've spoken before about the Dominionist movement, or as they like to call themselves, um, the, uh, what is it, the Apostolic Reformation, the New Apostolic Reformation, the NAR. The reason they keep showing up in the news is because um, former Republican frontrunner Rick Perry, who's been replaced as the frontrunner currently. They, they go back and forth. They go back and forth. By uh, whom? Uh, by Herman, Herman Cain, Cain of by Godfather Herman Pizza. Cain? Yeah. Listen, Ron Paul okay. won That's the straw poll, so they yeah. They... Well, switch. Back. It's all it's all a mess. Um, and Michelle Bachman um, are both tied to this movement. Now on Fresh Air, which is on one of those other public radio stations, uh, Terry Gross interviewed C. Peter Wagner, who is kind of the the center of this movement. Right. He's the first one to identify it and start writing about it. Um, he's also one of their um, leading members. And this interview it has some amazing stuff in it. Um, <laughs> Jaw-dropping. Jaw-dropping. Yeah. The word. Well, it, and in both regards, like some of it is, okay, he doesn't like homosexuality. Duh. All right. I'm shocked. Um, and there's some – Truly crazy things like um, here from the website where they have the the highlights of the interview um, on people in American politics being possessed by demons. Just that that's a subject in the interview yeah. is, a, is a good sign. You don't even need to know what follows the on. <laughs> right, right. Um, uh, see, Peter Wagner here says – we don't like to use the word possessed because that means they don't have any power of their own. We like to use the word afflicted or technical term demonized. demonized. This made my jaw drop because literally they are demonizing their enemies. Well, I, 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 yeah. I loved it, what literally. I was, and I was listening like to, to Terry Gross try to get like – a foothold into his worldview. Yeah. She was just trying to like, you know, is there any way I can like, how do I penetrate this? And so she's asking like, how would you know it if yeah. somebody was like, what signs would you look for that somebody – and he was always very vague like, well, yeah. you know. Uh, you, can just, you can just know when you – Yeah, he says there are people who are directly affected by demons, not only in politics but also in the arts. Of course in the well, arts. Obviously. In the media – Nudge, nudge, Terry Gross, and religion in the Christian church. Wow. So it's everywhere. Isn't that great, though, now that he pays attention to framing and how we describe yes. demon possession? We can say that he has a nuanced view, and he probably thinks of himself as having a nuanced view. In this they, they spent yeah. extra time when he was discussing the demonic influence on Japan. Uh, so yes. that's, oh, that was this, really that was good. Let, let me read some of this because this is this is amazing and almost it walks the line of being um, polytheistic. Yeah, Terragos asks him about the tsunami and nuclear meltdown in Japan being connected to the Emperor of Japan having sex with the sun goddess. Again, a question that in and of itself, which he believes is a real, he thing. believes there, is in but fact it's just the a, case. Like that, Satan is somehow doing. Yeah. Yes. So there is a sun goddess, but it's a demon. And Can we get a polyatheism on that at some point? Yeah. <laughs> Sex with the sun goddess. Watch Sounds out! Like a good episode. Don't to get me. burned. Don't um, get burned. Wow. That happened many, many years ago. 
And that created a spiritual atmosphere over Japan, which was an atmosphere ruled by powers of darkness. The sun goddess is not a very nice lady. <laughs> but again, acknowledging that the sun goddess is a real force right. in the universe. Who is this person? Anyways, I've never heard of this. I'm not sure. This I, guy's I, view of the world is so much more interesting than mine. <laughs> it, it truly is, yes. The sun goddess is a power of darkness which is headed up by the kingdom of Satan. And so the sun goddess wants natural disasters to come to Japan. Sometimes the hand of God, which is more powerful, will prevent them. And then he decides to prevent them and when he doesn't is far beyond anything that we can predict. But in this case, God could have prevented that tsunami and the destruction, but he didn't. He just took his hand off and allowed these natural forces to work. And one of the background pieces of information is Japan under control of the sun goddess. God's more powerful, but he he backed off from this and yeah. let the the sun goddess destroy the country that she's in charge of. If you're gonna have Doesn't sex with either. that woman, I'm just gonna wipe out some of your people <laughs> with a tidal wave and a nuke disaster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but then there was some interesting stuff um, in here too. On the other side, when speaking of Islam, he said, "If they're here in America, we don't oppose them." And I'm sorry that some radicals speak up strongly against having a mosque in their neighborhood, and I don't think that's patriotism. I oh. think America needs to make room for liberty. Wow. I know. <laughs> this was not at all what I expected from this guy. Uh, you know, I, to, to give him credit where credit's due, um, which is a limited space, but uh, I thought that was interesting. He also said about this thing that had been circulated for the um, Heartland Apostolic Reformation Network, um, the 40 Days of Light over D.C., which was this you know evangelical campaign in uh, Washington, D.C., and the literature had a picture of a cross on the Capitol building. And this caused a stir because it looked like they were suggesting um, theocracy, right? We want a government that's run by the cross. And he says, quote, I don't believe our capital ever wants a cross on top of it because that would be a sign of theocracy. So he actually comes out saying that was probably a mistake. We shouldn't have put it exactly that way because it looked like something we weren't trying to represent, which is amazing because ultimately I have this gut feeling that the, the Dominionists really do want theocracy, but at least now they're playing yeah. lip service to the fact that that they they maybe don't. Well, one might say that that it's a tact that he would want mosques to be there and not to have the government allied with that because they know that they work better as a minority movement uh, and sure. need certain enemies out there. You know, I don't know if you guys are following. Like, you just, think he's that politically savvy? Maybe not. Mm, I'm just that's maybe. just I'm being cynical there. But uh, you know, we started talking about that story because, or everybody was talking about it because they were the group that introduced was that Texas. Uh, the prayer rally that yes. introduced Perry. And I, I don't know if you guys are following, but just recently they had a, uh, another sort of Perry-associated 
speaker, I think his name was Jeffers, Jeffries, yes, uh, yes. who made some remarks about uh, about uh, Mitt Romney indirectly mm-hmm. uh, and the Mormonism issue, which you you knew it was only a matter of time before that came up. Mitt Romney's he's, been he's talking about that this weekend. He said too. we can have a good moral person or a a person who believes in a follower of Christ. Yeah. And so then the news media glommed onto this guy and said, "Are you saying that there's something wrong with Mormonism?" And he's like, "Yes, it's a cult." And uh, just recently, they were they somebody reminded him that the you know Constitution, which apparently that you know you have such a fetish for, with the Second Amendment, has clauses <laughs> saying that you can't have a religious test for public office. And he said something to the effect of, uh, okay. uh, "That's an individual. Uh, that's a government decision. You can't have a do- government endorsement of a religious exactly. test, but individuals can." Right. That's so when true. you go to vote, you can you can have your own religious test can, and say, "Well, he's a Mormon, so clearly I can't vote for exactly. him." Exactly. Um, as opposed to he's a nut job evangelical, that's okay. I think they're both equally insane. Um, he also talks about two um, end times stuff and how we need to support Israel because the Bible tells us that uh, these um, we believe that Israel composes the people of God and that they have fallen away at the moment, but they will come back eventually. So. Um, the spiritual mapping stuff, I thought, was kind of peculiar and interesting. I yeah. heard a, a bit of Ted Haggard's church doing this uh, in Harper's Magazine a long time ago. I think I think that was our friend uh, Jeff Charlotte wrote that article. Groups go out and target certain areas of the city for prayer and for spiritual healing. They have demonic influence. Yeah, it's it, like Google Maps, like except with instead of street view, it's demon <laughs> yeah. view, and you can rotate the little icon to see where the demons are clustering. It reminds me, though, of like some of these new new age uh, sites out in Arizona, New Mexico, where they've mapped out all the energy vortex. The yeah, right, right, right. Like the ley lines. It's, this is, yeah, this is like the uh, fundamentalist Christian version of it. Here's a, here's a quote on spiritual mapping to cast demons out of cities. Mm-hmm. When you talk about demons over cities, we're talking about what sometimes what we refer to as territorial spirits. They're more high-ranking spirits in the hierarchy of darkness. <laughs> this sounds like Shintoism. <laughs> And they're more powerful and they require different approaches. And it's not as easy as commanding them to leave in the name of Jesus. I like <laughs> Ghostbusters 2 also. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. It's not as easy. Well, you need proton packs. It's a way to get your – if you can get an evangelical real estate agent when you're shopping for a house, it's a way to knock down the price True. a bit like, you know, 156 <laughs> This is a high demon cluster neighborhood. (laughs) Maybe you could walk them down a bit on uh, on the price. Because I'm going to have to get that cleaned at my expense. So. It's like like radon. Why should I eat that cost? And of course. But by mapping um, the the demon-heavy areas, Peter Wagner is ensuring work for his wife, who is part of. Um, a movement that does um, uh, not exorcisms. Deliverance. Yeah, deliverance. That's the word they use for it. Um, Peter Peter Wagner says that he himself doesn't do too much of that unless he's backed into a corner. And I imagine he's actually being backed into a corner by a demon. Um, But his wife does tons of it. At the time of the interview, she was in Oklahoma City um, with a whole conference, a seven-day conference of 
uh, people learning how to do these deliverance. Well, if you watch the Discovery Channel and stuff on the demon, uh, the yeah. guy's name is um, is Bob Larson, I think. Yes. Is one of the, and so they and they always go to like hotel conferences where they have the generic carpets and the yep. and the walls that move in it. And so they have all these people in there, and then he goes around casting out the demons. And I'm always wondering, like, when you go to one of these conference halls where they have like all conference rooms, you'd be like, uh, which is the Room for the you know deliverance one, and there'd be like you know a lineup of all these people with with <laughs> demons. You're no no well, this is this is power to, of wealth. You need to go down to <laughs> to six E where the demons are. Well, there. and and you can tell someone is in need of deliverance when they say you got a pretty mouth. Got a <laughs> I'll make you squeal like a pig. There's different doors in the hallway. One like low ranking demons, high <laughs> yes. ranking demons. Like oh. Uh. I'm saving up to go to the advanced demon exorcism. <laughs> so so far, I've, I'm up to moderate demon infestation. <laughs> I haven't logged enough hours to take the advanced class. Oh dear. Um, well, um, let's move on to some counter apologetics. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter-apologetics. Well, this is a, an update of sorts. Um, so if you recall, back in episode 79, uh, which is titled Porn, Politics, and Perfection, I uh, presented an argument where I tried to show that the concept of the Christian God is an incoherent one. Mm-hmm. I did this by attempting to show a logical conflict between the ontological perfection of God and uh, the very first intentional creation of some non-God item, and specifically the universe is is what I was referring to. Um, But it could be substituted for any non-God item. Now, one of the assumptions I was making here is that God is the only item in the set of the things that exist that has always been in that set, uh, that God is ne- a necessary part of this set, and all else is contingent. Um, so it went something like this. Back before any creation act happened, there was a time where God would have been everything, and this everything was absolute ontological perfection. And because at that time, there was absolutely no distinguishing between God and uh, some other item that exists. If this is the most perfect state, then it cannot be improved. However, it's often claimed that From this initial state, God intentionally created the universe, and we know that intentional actions require a desire, but how can you have a desire or preference for some ontologically better state of affairs exist in the mind of a being that is the most perfect state of affairs and cannot be improved? Hmm. Um, So if all existence is entirely composed of God, then you can't really have a desire exist. So I went on to address possible objections in that episode. Um, One of the objections I uh, pointed out was that my argument, or that other people uh, potentially might point out, and actually they have, uh, Mm -hmm. whenever I use this, this is usually the first thing that pops up. Um, They point out that my use of temporal language when referring to a time before... Right, the uh, land before time. Right, Yes. a time before time, essentially, is what I'm saying. Um, that this doesn't make any sense, right? And that, hmm. that that that's why they can dismiss this argument 
because they found a, a place where linguistically it's uh, an illogical it not... or it, it seems illogical to right. have yeah right um, and I dismissed this argument probably a bit too quickly uh, by saying that you know if, if God's actions are not influenced by prior desires then God cannot be an intentional actor in any sense of the, of the word. Uh, so whatever God's actions are, they fall outside the realm of understanding. So by going down this road, they they must forfeit their right to even make the claim that the creation of the world was was an intentional act. Hmm. Um, you know, whichever way you want to think about time, it's irrelevant to whether a desire could exist in a state of affairs where God exists and absolutely nothing else does. Mm -hmm. So I want to suggest that rather than an objection to my argument, this insistence on atemporal happenings leading to a temporal world presents an additional problem for the Christian theist. And, and it's actually not a problem for the argument. And, uh, well, lucky for me, I was able to pose this question to uh, Dr. William Lane Craig to find out if my objection to their objection is is one with, with any merit. You guys were hanging out at a coffee shop? Yeah, yeah. We were, uh, me and Craigie were hanging out. <laughs> the coffee shop before time. <laughs> Isn't uh, that a Douglas Adams book? <laughs> it should have been. <laughs> there was any justice in this That's world. right. We should point out that William Lane Craig is, uh, one of his special areas of focus is uh, time issues within yes. philosophy and metaphysics. That's a weird area of expertise to have, I have to say. But good for him for having hey, it. Someone's got to do it, right? Yeah, right. Um, so uh, there's a podcast that I, that I subscribe to that uh, I would actually rec recommend for our listeners as well if they don't already know of it. Uh, it's called Unbelievable. This is a podcast by Premier Christian Radio, and it's hosted by Justin Brierley. Uh, Premier Christian Radio is actually organizing a lecture and debate series uh, with William Lane Craig over the next few months in the UK. And so many uh, were given the opportunity uh, when he was on the show recently to post post questions and he would answer them on the air. So I got to I got my opportunity to pose a question. And uh, here's the audio of this is Justin Brierley reading my question and, and uh, Craig's response. Um, aspect of, of the argument that people wanted to question was the whole issue of whether causation makes sense when we're talking about a time before time space began. And so, for instance, Justin Schieber asks um, Dr. Craig, it sure seems that intention, intentional actions require a temporal realm. A desire, which is the motivation for a given action, must be prior to and be causally related to that action if it is to be considered an intentional one. This seems like it would be a pretty standard view. But if time itself has not always existed, but is among the things being brought into existence, it seems to run into a difficulty. This suggests that God has a desire prior to time existing that causally leads to an eventual action. Does it make sense to speak of events being before or after each other without time actually existing yet? Does it make any sense to say that God has created space-time intentionally? Hmm. What do you say to that, Bill? It does not make sense to speak of events being before and after each other with time out uh, not actually existing. Before and after are temporal relations. So if you say that you have a before and after, you clearly have time. The question then is, does it make sense to say that God has created space-time intentionally, um, even though he's not chronologically prior to 
the beginning of the universe. And I think it does. I don't think that intentional actions require a temporal realm, as Justin seems to think. There's no reason that intentions and the actions that are the result of those intentions couldn't be simultaneous. For example, think of someone who is dangling off of a cliff, hanging onto a tree root to avoid falling. He intends to hold onto that root as firmly as he can. And his intentions are not chronologically prior to the action of fastening his hands around the root. They're simultaneous. So there simply isn't any need to have a chronological priority of intention to action. I think what is prior is a kind of explanatory priority. He holds onto the root tightly because he doesn't want to fall. So there is an explanatory priority of intention to action, but it doesn't need to be a chronological priority. So similarly, I think God can have a timeless intention to create a world with a beginning. And when he does create the world, then I think that is the moment simultaneously at which time comes into existence. Well, I hope this is already testing your brain if you're listening. It certainly is mine. And we're taking some of the toughest questions. It's not my fault, Justin. No, absolutely. Here's my response. I was I wrote a response. Right. So he answered your question on the air and you fired off a response back because his answer was not. Right. On the very next episode, they usually at the tail end of the episodes, I have email responses. And so he was gracious enough to put my response up on there. Justin Shiva was one of the people whose question I asked. And he says, Craig's response to my question on time and intentional action was an interesting one. Craig doesn't believe that intentional actions require a temporal realm, which, of course, um, is important in the sense of if God intended to produce the universe, does that make sense in the context of there not being any time before the Big Bang? Uh, But you say um, he thinks that intentions and the actions that are a result of those intentions could possibly be simultaneously. He asks us to think of a person dangling from a cliff, hanging onto a tree root to avoid falling. He claims that the intention to hang on to the root exists simultaneously with the action of grasping onto the root. Now, I actually think Craig is absolutely correct. However, I don't think it helps his case. Uh, It seems that Craig is not making an important distinction here. Firstly, one kind of intentional action is something to the effect of I want to act to change something about the state of affairs. And another kind of intentional action is something to the effect of I want to maintain the current state of affairs. Now, that second kind of action could be properly understood as having the action and the desire as being simultaneous. But it seems that the creation of the universe was the first kind of intentional action, which does require a temporal realm as it needs chronological priority. So you felt that his answer didn't solve the problem that you were asking. What do you guys think about that? I, I think you got it perfectly. I, yeah, I, I, I thought that, that was uh, uh, Craig was weaseling out of that. And he needs to assume a temporal order before you even get into that position of dangling from the tree. And right. right. It was right. just... Clearly, he was trying to show one instance of intention and action being right. somewhat Although simultaneous. I, I was, was going to say we can't really say they're simultaneous yeah. because yeah. of the – I mean we're talking speed of thought here. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. very right. close to simultaneous if we're looking at a clock, but if we're looking at neurons, they're not. Would I probably, agree. 
I'd probably retreat from that statement, like saying that that's that I absolutely agree. I think there is. Some I think you got you got to play the apologist game to right, some degree right, to right. actually so get to I'm the relevant just, challenge. You know, even if I allow that, he's he's still uh, ignoring a critical distinction. Um, yeah. yeah. So you know, his analogy is a false analogy. Right. Uh, if taken seriously, it kind of suggests if if we take that analogy literally and apply it to Craig, it kind of suggests that Craig believes that God has just always been maintaining the universe, and never actually started the process of creating it ex nihilo. Right. Um, you know, just as a man maintains his grasp upon the root. Uh, but Craig's Kalam argument clearly shows that you know this is not at all Craig's view. Mm-hmm. Um, so that can't be it. His insistence upon the possibility of simultaneous relationships between desires and actions does absolutely nothing to justify atemporal causation in terms of beginning to create ex nihilo. Um, this kind of intentional action would fall under a changing of the state of affairs, uh, not merely a, main, a maintenance of it. Um, and changing would require language like before and after, because uh, you would need a desire to motivate later on an actual change of affairs. Yeah, so it would be before and after uh, in the sense that a man, you know, if he desires to live, uh, will then reach out and begin grasping onto the root uh, after he's had the desire to survive and realize the predicament that he needs to act quickly in, right, that he's falling mm-hmm. from a cliff. Right. Um, so if God has an internal disposition to create the world, it must be non-simultaneous. There must be some kind of tension that exists between a desire and a state of affairs. Uh, that God wants a universe, however there is no universe. He must recognize that and then act as to fix that. So it seems that the most popular attempt to dethrone my initial argument, uh, when clarified, actually is just another point against the theist. It illuminates yet another huge problem for God's intentional creation of the universe. Now, if God's creation of the universe was not intentional, uh, the universe exists completely without intrinsic purpose. So he hasn't responded to you. Well, I I posted this on his Facebook. I, I like... I know Are this your, is the your Facebook friends with William Lane I totally Craig? Am. That's awesome. <laughs> Does he have any party pictures? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and he interacts pretty regularly on his Facebook. Yeah. Um, not to this though. But not not to this. Uh, and I don't want to make any assumptions. But you know, yeah, it's just, it just hasn't happened yet. So. Do you intend to create the Facebook, or did it just pop? <laughs> just, well, it happened <laughs> at the same time. Oh. Yes. All right, let's wrap up with some polyatheism. This time in polyatheism, if you'll indulge me, I'm getting a little personal. You see, just over a year ago, my daughter was born, and so in honor of her first birthday, today we're talking about her namesake, the Valkyries. Literally, the choosers of the slain, and yes, I call my daughter Daddy's Little Chooser of the Slain. (laughs) It's going to take quite a while for her to figure that out. (laughs) And there's going to be a lot of damage in the meantime. I want to be in the preschool when this conversation occurs. My name's Sally, what's yours? I'm okay. Valkyrie, chooser of the slain. Uh, okay, did you bring a treat or something for show and tell? <laughs> chooser of the slain? You do not understand. 
so the Valkyries are beautiful, armored young women who ride flying horses into battle and, well, choose the slain. Uh, in the earliest days of belief in the Valkyries, they may have been represented by ravens who descended upon fallen soldiers on the battlefield. Carrion Beast would be another good nickname for her. Um, <laughs> she plucks the eyes out of corpses. <laughs> they later got a bit of a makeover and are now often referred to as swan women because they wear swan feathers as they fly into battle and grant warriors their swan song, which is, by the way, a phrase that has no connection whatsoever to the Valkyries or Norse mythology and is of entirely separate origin, but I like the poetry of it, so I used it anyway. Their most important job is to select those who die heroically on the battlefield and take them back to Valhalla, or the Hall of the Dead. Odin, the Allfather, or Valfather father of the slain, relies on the Valkyries to choose just the right warriors to be taken back to his great hall because these are the men who will make up his army in the final battle. This is the greatest fate for any warrior, of course, because in Valhalla, not only are they served mead by the Valkyries, mead which flows from a magic goat who eats magic leaves from a magic tree and is thus able to produce a vat of honey wine each day. It's a magic kind of mead. Beats the shit off of that Chilean uh, chili pepper mead. (laughs) Is that a real thing? Yeah. That sounds awful. It hurts. Um, I would think. Um, And they're also fed from a giant boar who regenerates every night to be eaten again the next day. It's a living. Flintstones reference. But they also get all dolled up in their armor and beat the snot out of each other every day in practice for the Battle of Ragnarok. Often, in both the poetic and prose eddas of Norse mythology, Valkyries play the most active roles in stories as the wives, mothers, and sisters of the great heroes. Like Brunhilde? Exactly. Brunhilde. With Siegfried? You can see all this, or, by the way, if you just watch a quick Wagner opera that lasts four hours. Exactly. The entire ring cycle. Okay. Did you say quick The Wagner ring cycle, opera? is it nine or 12 oh, hours or something? When you do all of them back yeah, the to back thing. and got, like all the way to Gutter Demerung, it's like, you know. <laughs> yes, yes. Picky as they should be, they often demand their suitors prove their bravery through extraordinary feats before agreeing to marry them. Sigurd, the dragon slayer and most notable mortal hero of Norse mythology, is lucky enough to be a son, brother, and husband to three of the Valkyries. Not the same one. This isn't uh, Mesopotamian mythology. Mm. No doubt this is the source of much of his strength. Yes, oftentimes the Valkyries take on roles of servitude, serving wine, acting as messengers for Odin, and so forth, but they are all powerful warriors in their own right. Wearing armor that sparkles as they ride across the sky, causing the Aurora Borealis, they each, like Odin, bear a magic spear. They are also known as the Shield Women, which makes them pretty damned important on the battlefield, as well as being incredibly brave. You keep your shield in front of you, or you aren't going to last very long in a hardcore Viking battle. So they quite literally, or is it figuratively, are the front line. You now, can actually see a, a Valkyrie, if you go to the Valkyrie performance with Wagner's opera, they 
are called to come upon little pulleys and you have these like huge sopranos wearing like weighing like 300 bucks right, and right, the stage right. hands are like we got to get you up on wires yep and no, then they man. swoop down with yeah, their spears and <laughs> the, the proverbial <laughs> fat lady right yes flying through the air it's all over They're when the balcony sing uh Two incredibly powerful figures in Norse mythology receive either full or honorary men- membership amongst the ranks of the Valkyries. One is Skuld, whose name means something like future or obligation, who is also a Norn. She's like Wolverine, who's both an X-Man and an Avenger. <laughs> the Norns, of course, are the Just women... in case you needed an analogy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, the Norns, of course, are the women who determine the fates of each human being, which makes sense then to have her crossover to Team Valkyrie as well. The other woman associated with the Valkyries is the goddess Freya. Freya, whom we'll talk about at length some other time, is arguably the most important Norse goddess and is responsible not only for choosing the slain, but for taking half of them to her own hall and training them for Ragnarok. She gets half of the dead warriors, and Odin gets the other half. Truly forward-thinking of the Norse to give such a critical gig to a woman. They certainly weren't the most enlightened culture, but you have to at least give them credit for that. And in closing, I think Wagner said it best when he said of the Valkyries, I love the smell of victory in the morning. So there you have it, the Valkyries, one more race of mythic warrior women worth not believing in. Um, well, so that's going to do it for us this week. In the meantime, you can send us your comments, questions, challenges, and so forth to doubtcast at gmail.com. And I'm talking to you, William Lane Craig. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at slash doubtcast. Head over to our new website. You can still go to doubtcast.org, and that will redirect you to freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. And feel free to comment on our blog where uh, the conversation is just getting heated up. So that's going to do it for us. We'll be back soon with another Reasonable Doubt, your skeptical guide to religion. catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. time. It's not what you think it is. Complicated. Very complicated. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff.